Welcome to Batty to Batty, a monthly podcast by For the Breast of Us, the first breast cancer community for all women of color, where we share real-life experiences, information, and education to help you live your best life after a breast cancer diagnosis. Welcome to Batty to Batty. Welcome to Batty to Batty. Hey y'all, my name is Miranda and I am one of the OG Batty Ambassadors with For the Rest of Us. us. I was diagnosed in 2016 with stage three hormone positive breast cancer. I live in Houston, Texas and I am a stay at home mom with a family of five. I have used my breast cancer diagnosis to motivate me and propel me into volunteering more with the breast cancer community. I love connecting women with each other and resources just to help make their lives a little bit easier. Hey, it's Vanessa, aka Baby Daddy. I was diagnosed with stage 2A invasive ductal carcinoma at the age of 24, and I'm here representing the young Latinx baddies. By the way, if you hear some cackling, chances are it's me laughing at my own jokes. Hola baddies, this is Natasha Vega, your baddie ambassador coming all the way from New York City. I was diagnosed with stage 2 breast cancer on September 11, 2020. Lots has changed and less to talk about. Wanna talk? Let's do this. Hello everybody, thank you for being here. We're so excited this month. We have actually two guests with us, some non-Batty ambassadors. We're very happy and excited to share some information from them and with them. We are going to be talking about all things Latina in the world. Um, It's Hispanic Heritage Month. It's September 15th to, I think, October 15th. And no one can ever really tell me why it starts in the middle of the month. I'm not really sure, so. I think I know why. (laughs) And what is that? Um, El Dia del Grito de Dolores is on September 15 and 16. It's like midnight that night, and it's Mexican Independence Day. Oh, well, there you go. Oh, wow. I actually didn't know that. (laughs) See, you're getting educated. Yeah. Getting educated at the same time. We have two guests with us today. We're excited to talk with them. Our first guest is going to be Araceli. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yes. uh, My name is Araceli Cortez, and I was diagnosed in 2020 where I was uh, 34. And I was diagnosed with invasive ductal carcinoma, um, triple positive. And since then, I've been, you know, just kind of learning a little bit as I go and, you know, just uh, trying to be part of uh, this learning experience and, and on the way helping others as well. And oh, um, I'm Mexican. <laughs> Thank you very much. And then last but not least, we have Miss Deb. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Deb Ontiveros. And let's see, in 2018, I was 37. 
diagnosed stage four metastatic and to round out the triple positives, also triple positive. Um, it's been quite the journey. And uh, I, you know, Mexican blood raised Argentinian. So happy to be here. Wow, I bet you guys have like really interesting holidays. I can only imagine the food. So one of the things I kind of really wanted to focus on because it is Hispanic Heritage Month and I think a lot of pe people automatically assume when you have a Latin or Spanish or Mexican last name that you instantly speak Spanish. You're the go-to at a restaurant or a store or whatever that may be. And I think a lot of people don't realize that, especially I think living um, even here in Texas, that we have a lot of people who are third and fourth generation that don't speak Spanish, that their families have kind of assimilated, you know, into American culture. So one of the things I've always been curious of, because I don't speak Spanish, I've always wanted to know what the experience was like going through treatments as someone who does speak Spanish. I've done some volunteer work at some county hospitals and I have encountered lots of people who speak lots of different languages and they have positive experiences and they have negative experiences. But um, so that's why I wanted to have you ladies on today and just kind of get your perspective. And, you know, I'm sure there's women out there who are, you know, same background, same situation that are, you know, newly diagnosed or newly diagnosed metastatic and just curious, like how to navigate, you know, going through treatment in a big center or small center in a big city or little city. So um, I don't know much, but I know, Araceli, you are not originally from Houston, right? You moved here from somewhere. Um, well, I was born in Mexico, um, but I've been living here since I was three, mm -hmm. and um, I, I, I guess I consider myself pretty fluent in both in both languages, uh, Spanish and English. Um, I will say that um, I kind of see a little bit of, of, of my aunt. She was diagnosed with breast cancer, and she passed away at 40. She was only Spanish-speaking, and I was uh, the one along uh, with some other family members being translated during her, you know, her, her cancer journey and me being fluent in both. I just find that I can, I guess, um, you know, talk to the, you know, get my message across, uh, ask questions. And my aunt, you know, she kind of relied more on, you know, someone like me to, to help her and, and ask the doctors the questions that I guess maybe she was, shy about or or just had trouble even communicating did you feel like the fact that she was a native spanish speaker did you feel like it impacted her treatment or the interactions she had with her doctors i believe so um i can just imagine now uh thinking about it how confusing uh, it's already confusing for us you know right. hearing all the medical terms you know that's another language in itself <laughs> Um, but just uh, to hearing all the and learning, you know, all, all the treatments, the, the, you know, m medical terms and, you know, surgeries that you have to go through and, and what your body has to go through as well. And, and the options that I didn't know that even existed. Um, so all this, you know, with with being Latina and not knowing what is out there and, and already having that language barrier, I think that that definitely affects the, the treatment and, you know, the outcome maybe even. Um, 
Where are you from originally? Because I saw just from following you on social media, I know you came here to ha have treatment at MD Anderson. Is that correct? Uh, well, I live in Cyprus, but oh, okay. uh, I, I go to MD Anderson in the woodlands. Oh, okay. Great. And what about you, Deb? I know that you are a Spanish speaker. We've had some interaction online as well. Um, yes, I grew up in a bilingual household. I feel really fortunate. Um, I was actually adopted by an Argentinian family. And so I didn't even know that I was Mexican until I was older. Um, wow. And so that was a very interesting experience. Um, I was a caregiver, uh, a home care worker for a long time. And then I went to school actually for interpreting and I learned to be a medical interpreter, but I never had the opportunity to go work in a hospital. I became a mom and, you know, life goes on and stuff. Um, and so when I got diagnosed, of course, it, you know, was a surprise. There's no history in my family. And I live in a state that is primarily white. Um, so it was already hard pre-diagnosis kind of just living you know wow. just being a person every day and um it's been a it's been a pretty interesting experience um i you know i um i was treated at huntsman cancer institute in salt lake city utah mm -hmm. um excellent facility you know but you know there's there's things you know that i saw or things that i think would make other people more comfortable. And so that's what's kind of encouraging me to go into the direction of shifting the work I've done before into this type of advocacy, because I know that I would have appreciated someone that understood <clears throat> cultural issues, you know, and, um, you know, to guide me along the way, you know, or even just hearing it, you know. Um, I think that there are some things that uh, only Latinas understand, you know, and, and that and it's a different it's a different culture when mm -hmm. it comes to, you know, dealing with illness and family and caregiving and treatment and stuff. And so I think that we all of us and I know Vanessa and Natasha are already doing it, uh, mm -hmm. using our voices to kind of bring some you know, awareness to these disparities yeah. um, in the system and in hospitals. Yeah. I think even what I have noticed, even in really nice hospital, you know, I say, quote unquote, nice hospitals, you can't even really talk to anyone about like the food that you like, you know, you're not feeling well from chemo. And, you know, there's, there's no way to kind of talk to someone about substitutions, because this is what you like. And a lot of people want you to eat, you know, completely <laughs> bland, boring stuff. And that's not even what you ate, you know, pre diagnosis. Right? <laughs> so yeah. that's a whole thing. And just the movies you grow up with and you know cultural little jokes and things all that yeah it's it's completely different having to try to relate to someone who has no background in any of that at all i don't i don't know about the rest of you but for well, me, me whenever I, I had a lot of sopa de fideo oh. <laughs> <laughs> mm, that sounds delicious i'm sorry um I, for myself, I, whenever I saw a Latina or Latino nurse or somebody in the hospital, I would get so excited because <laughs> there was, it was so rare, you know, and I would be like, please come over here and talk to me. And, um, and it would, it would make me feel more comfortable, yeah. you know, and, and, and I needed that. I don't have any family, um, in this state with me. And so I, for me, and I know that there's probably other patients, you know, um, you want familiarity. 
or someone that can say something to you right. in your own language, you know, and in, in a way that they get it, you know. Um, and I had a few few moments like that at Huntsman, and I'm thankful, uh, you know, for those times. You know, there was like a nurse from Uruguay. She was so cool. <laughs> like, uh, it was really nice. You know, she would take the time to just sit down and chat with me when I was getting my infusions and stuff. And, um, and I think that when you don't have a family member with you or someone close to you, that, that that's nice, you know, mm. someone that can connect and talk about South America, you know, talk about the language and the food and, and this and that. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a whole different thing. So we have our newest Betty ambassador, Natasha. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience? Yeah. So, you know, as I hear you guys talk, I think for me, one, you know, one of the things that really resonated when I started going into treatment was when I came to this country when I was 13 with my parents um, and in New York City, quite a diverse city, but also quite a abrupt and quick and fast paced. I always got really angry at the fact that because my parents, even till this day, did, you know, they don't, my dad doesn't speak um, English, they would look at him differently and they would, and they would treat him differently. And I always got so angry about that um, because I, I could see that they sensed him inferior. And and so for me, I've never really, I've never really been a fan of like going to the doctor and, and all that. And Deb, when I hear you about like having a Hispanic, like doctor or nurse, you automatically want to make a connection in moments where there isn't a lot of emotional human approach to things. Everything is done by coats and by long words that I can barely even pronounce myself. Exactly. And so, mm-hmm. um, right? And so for me, it was really important for some odd reason that they understood that I I wasn't one, you know, I wasn't that. And that didn't mean that I wasn't Hispanic or, I mean, my accent could say it the second that I opened my mouth. <laughs> but but that I, I needed to, I almost came in like demanding that things were explained to me extra and that they took the time. So I came a little bit like guns blazing mm-hmm. unnecessarily, <laughs> not back. Like no one would, you know, I had a great medical team, but it was more, almost like, well, you guys are not just going to disregard me and dismiss me so you can go on to the next, next patient. Um, and they always say like oncologists are very much like type A brain about the way, mm-hmm. right? Like, they, you know, yes. It's like, it's the treatment and any emotional other side effects are like, yeah, 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 you can deal with that. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> so true. right? And so for yeah. me, I, I felt like being in New York City where things, you know, I, I'm, I'm a lot of resources available, but also it's so fast paced. It was really about having my voice heard and and the thing that I've also thought about is, you know, you come into this country and at least my family, like you put your head down and you, 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 you work, you don't question things because you should be oh so lucky to be in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You put your head down, 
just keep it moving, do your work and, and all that. And I felt like that was a moment where I, I didn't need to do that. And it was quite an eye-opening experience for me to not just assume that whatever service they were going to give me was enough, but if it didn't feel right, then I needed to speak up. And then I realized, well, I don't think I've been taught that since I got here to speak up and to, if it wasn't sufficient to ask for more. And so, you know, they, you know, I feel like there's a lot of gifts, you know, with getting this, you know, getting cancer. And I, I feel like that one was for me a very, maturing and growing moment yeah when i think too whether you have grown up speaking spanish or not we especially in i think culture the latina culture whether you're you know hispanic mexican colombian anything we're taught exactly what you said you know the doctor is basically god and you defer to him and you That's don't right. ask questions you want to be nice because you think if you're nice to him he'll give you something extra you know Agreed. you want to be friends yes. with him because if you're friends then you know, you know, he's going to do everything for you, but you know, they're, they're just people doing jobs, unfortunately. And they don't always, it doesn't matter how nice we are. We don't always get that, you know, <laughs> that extra special care that we, that we hope to get. Right. But I also feel there is, there are a lot of inequities, right. And they are, <laughs> they are the, the reality is whether, whether consciously or subconsciously, whether it's by the way, by looking at us or opening our mouths and having an accent, we do make us some form of impression in some form of like, they, they, they kind of almost profile you, whether for positive or negative. There is a sense yeah. of, I, I kind of think I know who this person is. Uh, and, yes. and I just feel like it's so hard for Hispanic, like for at least... I want to say Hispanics to generalize, but at least like the world that I'm coming from to not be so apologetic to like the things you don't know or the things, or even like I said, having an accent, right? Like that doesn't, if, if it was another accent, it would probably be perceived as, ooh, mysterious, um, educated, but the Hispanic one has a different perception to it. And so I just always, I, I'm always now so conscious of that. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but it just, it just kind of is. This is unrelated, but you have like the cutest accent. It's like the perfect mixture of like New York. Like if my eyes are closed, I would envision you with like big hoop earrings, you know, your hair pulled oh, back. Oh, I had the big hoop earrings and then oh. I had the gel and the, oh yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. That was me. You are in. We're gonna need we're gonna need those pictures for headshots later on. <laughs> so Vanessa, I know you and I have talked before about um, both of us, you know, sort of understanding a bit of Spanish, not really speaking it very fluently, or you know, mm -hmm. um, being having family members that speak it very fluently. Fluently, um, but I'm curious, you know, especially because you know we do have. Hispanic surnames, what was your experience going to get treatment? Not only, you know, you kind of have the double whammy, you're young and then also coming from this other, you know, area, how, how did that, do you feel it impacted your treatment or how do you feel it did? You know, uh, so my last name 
is actually kind of very uncommon. So I think people typically do a double take of, okay, what, what is she? So my last name's Chapoy. Um, basically, uh, my dad claims, okay, this is a story he claims. I don't know how factual it actually is, but he swears that his great grandfather immigrated from France to Mexico. It was originally Chapoy and at some point it got messed up in immigration and changed to Chapoy. So my dad claims were the, yeah, (laughs) I'm like, it's a nice story. But when I did Ancestry.com, no French came up anywhere. So, so, but then people look at me and they see like the color of my skin and they're like, okay, so what is she? (laughs) Um, So people are always like, so where are you from? And I say, oh, I'm from Maryland. (laughs) And then they say, no, where are you really from? Where are you really from? Yeah. Uh, only Maryland. <laughs> and I explained, oh, well, my mom grew up in San Diego, California. That's what you mean. Um, <laughs> five minutes from the border, give it, give you, don't mind, mind you. Um, and then my dad grew up in Mexico and he immigrated to the U.S. Um, in his 20s. And then people say, oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> and so I, I it's, I've always had a very weird relationship with my identity in terms of how I present to other people because I kind of like what you were mentioning earlier, Miranda, of living in that hyphen of the in-between. Like I'm too white with the brown folks, but then too brown with the white folks. Um, I grew up in a predominantly white community. Um, I was used to being the only Hispanic in the room. Um, But I think when it came to treatment, Given how jarring it was for them to see how young I was, I think that was what they noticed first before um, my the color of my skin because they didn't see the surname that was the stereotypical Latina last name. Yeah. Um, however, so an experience that I had that was very interesting was when I was being diagnosed um, – I found it very difficult to be able to talk about my diagnosis with my Spanish speaking family. I had zero clue how to tell them what was going on. Like I just never knew any of like the medical terms in Spanish and stuff. So it was really hard for me to be able to confide and talk to my family that, that mostly spoke Spanish, like with my grandma um, and like with all of my dad's side of the family. Um, So I found the language barrier a little different in my sense. It wasn't necessarily on the medical doctor facing side. Instead, it was really hard communicating with my relatives. Um, and like nobody in my family is a doctor. Um, I, at the time I didn't know, I didn't know anyone in my family had breast cancer at the time. That was a plot twist. And we can get into that in a bit (laughs) about, you know, (laughs) where our t- families are, they're always so metiche, but they don't actually talk about the, the bad stuff that happens to them. You know, um, it's very hush hush because, you know, you don't want to seem as inferior by having an illness of some kind, you know? Um, but at the time I had, no, I thought I, my family had zero history of cancer or anything like that. No genetic mutations, which is true. We have no gen- known genetic mutations. Um, but I don't, I only found out maybe six months ago that there were actually three women in my family that had breast cancer all oh on my, my mom's 
on my mom, okay, on my maternal grandmother's side. Um, so my grandmother had two cousins that had breast cancer and then another aunt or cousin that had breast cancer. None of them um, passed from it. All they needed was surgery. But again, it was in Mexico. So who really knows? They weren't really told what their diagnosis was. They were just told, okay, you'll have surgery and then you're done and you're out. And they never really talked about it after that. Um, And I was really upset when I found out about this literally six months ago. And the only reason I found out was because my grandma found a lump for herself, like on herself. And she, um, and my mom was like, oh yeah, well you should be getting that checked out. She was like, oh yeah, yeah, I know. Um, but not just because of Vanessa, but because, you know, because of my cousins. And I was like, wait, what? And because my mom and I, we asked her so many times. We asked everyone in our family, did you know about any family history of any kind? And I was like, no, no, no. And then we finally, I asked my grandma about it. And she's like, well, I didn't know that had anything to do with it. I'm like, well, this is important information. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's like, we need to be able to tell the other women in our family that they should at least be on monitoring themselves more diligently. I mean, every woman or person, every person should be, but... I mean, the fact that our families don't talk about the real, like, this sort of stuff instead of, you know, like, the juicy gossip of, oh, my God, they slept with who? Yeah. <gasps> it was That's the twin. Like, like you know, you? Like, my family has so many telenovela stories, like, di- people living double lives and all that, but nobody ever talks about the illnesses. Yeah. Um, Have you guys ever I- heard of the reference, like, you wash your dirty laundry at home? Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. I think it's that that point of like those things, you know, certain things you just don't talk about. Mm-hmm. And it's, I don't know why there's so many taboo topics, because I agree with you, Vanessa, that would be one where it's like, it would be quite beneficial. And it could be like safe lives to, to, to actually vocalize it. Mm-hmm. That's, so yeah, that's, I know. I know my answer was very not where you were going with it, Miranda. No, it's it perfect. Like <laughs> it's um, perfect. But in terms of like language barrier, I did find it very difficult to even be able to speak about it with my own family. Um, yeah. And it honestly, I honestly think it put a lot of pressure on my mom, who was my main caregiver, because she was basically the translator for everyone. So mm-hmm. I kind of funneled it all to her. And she had to explain to everyone what was going on, but she had to fi- also figure out, okay, what are the terms that I should be using yeah. and stuff. So it was like, she was my partner in crime during all of this and was with me every step of the way. But I think it also from a caregiver lens, it put a lot of pressure on her as being the translator for the rest of my family as to what was going on. Um, yeah. Okay. I'm done talking. <laughs> so I think kind of what you said actually leads me into my next question or statement. Um, There does seem to be, for whatever reason, I'm not really sure within the Latina culture, Latino, you know, the worldwide culture, this kind of sense of shame, right? This stigma to illness or disease. And I think that's the whole thing with not talking about it, you know, that if it is, it's very hush hush. It's, It's talked about like the chisme, right? Like you're just like you said, like, you know, gossip among each other, but it's never talked about in the way we need it to be talked about. So I'm curious. I mean, I know this is probably nothing that's going to be answered, you know, in a hour long podcast, but where do you ladies think like this sense of shame 
you know, like you were talking, Natasha, exactly what you said, you know, keeping your dirty laundry at washing your dirty laundry at home. Why is there this sense of shame? Why don't we feel like we can share just even just the diagnosis like mental health? That's a whole other thing. We're going, yeah. like, I don't even know if we have time to talk about that, but yeah. Um, yeah. What do you ladies think? Does anyone have any idea where that could be coming from? I, I have some thoughts. Um, when I was caregiving for my mom, she had a very thick accent. We had to deal with, you know, a lot of uh, microaggressions from people and stuff. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that she would always do, and it drove me crazy, but I understood it culturally was, you know, I always had to have my lipstick on and my blush on. No quiero que me vean tan enferma, right? Like she didn't want to look sick. And I started observing and wondering like, why, you know, because I'm a different generation. I'm like, who cares, you know? Uh, but it sort of stuck with me a little bit because I was a bit of a diva at every treatment with my jewelry and my makeup, you know, to honor her. But I started thinking about it. And let's think about it. Latina women are matriarchs in their family. And so they're generally, you know, in charge of the cooking, the cleaning, the running the family, you know, the, being the main caregiver. So to be sick, you know, would be like a weakness and like, oh, no, no, no. You know, I'm taking care of everyone. I don't want anyone to take care of me. You know, I don't, I don't want to handle that. And I think that's a lot of pressure and it's generational, you know, so it comes down. So I know for my mom, I was, ex not only was I expected, I was never asked to, I already knew that I was going to be her caregiver for the illnesses that she suffered uh, until she passed away. And it was very hard for me, but it was just something that I sort of knew because um, I don't know about the rest of you, but I grew up learning that we do not put our parents in nursing homes. We right. take care of them. Yeah. And so there was a lot of pressure. I'm the only girl, right? And I'm, you know, more güerita than the rest of the family. And so it was like, uh, you know, when I went into interpreting and learning, you know, then I started kind of piecing together, you know, like each culture, like learning Central Americans, you know, and South Americans and, you know, the islands and realizing this is a pattern between all of us, you know, matriarchs, mm -hmm. be strong, no se habla de eso, you know, we don't talk about illness, right, like, and, uh, and I think that's what it comes because, and, you know, some kind of shame, like, you, you need to push through it, and, and I think that um, it's sad, because there's probably a lot of emotions and things that are being stuffed down and not talked about. And like you said, we, we could go on forever with the mental health part of this. Um, but I know that for my mom, it was always an image. No, 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 no. You know, I have to, my hair has to be perfect. My makeup has to be perfect. And she just had a heart attack, you know, like, and she's about to have surgery, you know, and, and it's like, mama, por favor, you know, like, but it's just how she was. And so I realized that when I got diagnosed, you know, and I, and I don't have my mom anymore, you know, and I wish that she would have been there with me. Um, I started kind of channeling her and doing these little cultural things, except I went the other way. I was very vocal about this. You know, I posted on social media uh, a, a lot of my journey along the way because I was like, no, you know, basta con eso, like no more silencio. I don't like we need to talk about this because this is these are real things that are happening. You know, I had no idea. I also had no um, history of breast cancer in my family. Since I was adopted, I had to do all the genetic testing and do all that. And I didn't have any of the genes, but I just thought to myself, like, you know, if we don't talk about it, you know, like, what are we teaching our, our children? You know, our sons, our daughters, mm -hmm. you know, and stuff. And, 
you know, if one day I'm not here, I want my daughter to be able to use her voice and be like, okay, you know what? There's no shame in being sick and asking for help. Mm-hmm. There isn't, but yeah, we, I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you pretty much hit yeah. the nail on the head. We are the matrix. We do everything. Mm-hmm. I, I actually just had a conversation with Natasha yesterday because I was like, Ugh, I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed because I'm doing like, you know, the three kids at three different schools and jobs and uh-huh. restaurant and dinner and all this stuff. But, you know, and it's like, okay, I'll just power through it. I'll just get through it, you know? Yeah, I think we just put a lot of pressure on ourselves, you know, not just as women, but also culturally, right? Like we see what our grandmas did and what our mothers mm-hmm. did. And so, yeah, so how do we how do we break that? How do we yeah. um, make these things that aren't okay, okay now going forward, you know? Yeah. And I think the more that we talk about it and the more that we see other people that look like us, mm-hmm. um I think the more we'll be able to spread the word. I also think that there's not enough communication in language, yes. in Spanish. And so it's, it's also a systemic issue that it's like a yes. vicious cycle because there's also nothing in language that could help. Like you were saying, Vanessa, when you're speaking yeah. Spanish to your, to your family, that like would just be readily available. I, who... Spanish is my first language, I probably couldn't even do the same either, right? Like I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to articulate myself with with all the terminology, but I will say, and this is major props to Vanessa, like when I was going through my journey, she was going through hers and she was very, very vocal. And I was very shy about my my treatment like I was embarrassed I had this long curly hair and now I'm bald and I just never embraced that and I was embarrassed like and now I'm looking back and I was like I have nothing to be embarrassed about but it was like looking at folks like Vanessa or looking at for the breast of us when I was looking at your guys's photo shoot where I was like wait there's these women and they they look like me and they're kicking ass. And so maybe I should start talking about it. And I, I ended up, you know, once I, I got like the, I'm in remission, I became more vocal. But in hindsight, I wish I would have been more vocal about it. I was so embarrassed of like, I felt like my hair defined me. My eyebrows defined me where it's so much bigger than that. But even when I remember being a, a little girl, the first time that I cut my hair short, my father stopped talking to me for two months. Oh my God. Uh, and it was super long, but the fact that God forbid his baby girl cut uh, her hair was like... Oh my goodness. And so we, we've been trained to look and be and be able to do everything while still wearing the heels and having the full yep. set of makeup. That's right. And that's not okay. And so that's mm-hmm. why I feel like commu- when language communication should be yes on all of like the more scientific things, but also debunking these myths that are in in our heads. Yeah, it's so funny. I remember my grandma telling me when I cut my hair, I didn't even think about it until this moment. Like, well, your hair looks fine, but I think it looks better longer. Like she would always be upset if I cut my <laughs> hair. It was very long black yeah. hair. Which is, that's something else that, um, that I have noticed. So, you know, you see women on TV, you know, Latino women, and they always have 
long, done up hair. Beautiful. So I was just explaining to someone, <laughs> if you have never seen the news on Telemundo, then you need to check <laughs> it out. Because the These women, they're like going clubbing. They're dressed. I mean, they're like, they're beautiful. Don't get me wrong. Yes. Booty popping, everything, the hair, the makeup. So, and these are, these are like weather people reporting on the weather. So how does that feel? Like, how does that translate to us when we're going through treatment? If this is what we see and this is what we learn and what we know, and not to say that losing your hair isn't devastating for anyone, but I feel even more so because we did not grow up wearing wigs. So that's yeah. not something that we, you know, know how to do. That's a whole thing, right? Yes. Yeah. I never wore a wig. Oh, In really? Houston, I, the humidity, you just don't oh, even want to wear. It's gross. <laughs> and, uh, and thankfully for me, uh, well, when I was diagnosed, well, I don't know if it's a blessing or not, but like it, it happened during COVID. So I was not going anywhere. I was bald at home, just <laughs> roaming around. And when I decided to cut my hair, I just decided to do it before chemo got it. So I included my mm. husband and my, I guess, uh, the year old, two year old, and they both, you know, decided Aww. to shave my hair. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, was, um, I was dating somebody. Wait, I'm, I'm glad. And. And um and he wasn't a husband, he was he was a boyfriend. And I tell you that during that whole time I dated him, I wore my wig at night. Like I fell asleep with my wig mm. on. And then there were days where like I would wake up and like the eyebrow would be like half blurred <laughs> out. I would like wake up in the middle of the night to put it back in. Like what was I thinking? But those are the things you you know, I was prioritizing at that time. Yeah. It is cultural. I'm I'm not going to lie. I took the losing the hair thing pretty hard. Uh, I had gorgeous hair wavy down to my waist. My daughter was like a little mini me. You know, she was very upset. She sat on my lap when my hair started falling out. My brother came and just shaved it off and it was just kind of a moment. But I had a really, really hard time with losing the hair and I felt kind of vain. But then I realized it's attached to the culture. Right. Oh, my gosh. You know, my long, beautiful hair. And so but I didn't want to wear wigs. I didn't like them. Uh, they were uncomfortable. So what I did was I bought a bunch of scarves and a lot of people and not the little ones, like the yeah. beautiful scarves. I was so used to wearing a ponytail, like a braid or a ponytail that I took the scarves and I just, you know, would tie them and it would feel like I had hair. Mm -hmm. I had them tied in a knot and I would do it all the time. And then when I would get home and I was a single mom at the time, so it was just her and I, you know, and um I would um, just be bald at home. And then every time I had to go out and stuff, it was summer when I was getting treatment. So I needed to, you know, protect my hair and stuff, but I, I couldn't do it. It wasn't for me. And there was something about the wearing the scarves made me feel very glamorous. And again, like I said, I wanted to just, you know, kind of like a tribute to my mom, even though I was like, ah, I shouldn't be doing this, you know, then I'm like, well, why not? You know, I don't, you know, uh, yeah. this is just how it is. Like how you said, we, I grew up watching Primer Impacto, Univision, and you see, you know, the everything, you know, and, and my mom would always make comments like, you should dress like that. You know, I don't dress in little dresses and stuff. I'm comfortable, but I, I hold on strong to the, like, I got to look my best. I had treatment yesterday and you better believe that right before I went, I was like putting on eyelashes because mine never came back, you know, drawing on eyebrows because these never came back either. 
you know, putting on, even though I was wearing a mask, I was like wearing lipstick still underneath it. It's <laughs> such a habit. It's like ingrained in us, yeah. you know? And, and so I think, and for me, it's harder to be more vulnerable and show my face, see maquillaje, you know, and just kind of looking a little normal, you know, and maybe no eyeliner and stuff. And, and I, and that has been something that I've struggled with, with the outer, you know, and letting go of it. And now I don't want to grow my hair back. I'm like, you know what? That's cool. <laughs> it's much manageable, you know, but I, I think, and I think that other people don't get it. Cause they'll be like, it's just hair. Um, I actually want to share a story about a lady I ran into at the cancer mm. center, uh, also a Latina, barely saw any of them there, right? And she had the same moment where she was talking about losing her hair. And, you know, she felt really seen after she and I had a conversation about it. I was speaking to her in Spanish and I was like, you know, I get it, you know, and, you know, and, and how we want to look our best, you know, and, and she felt a little bit better. She was so scared, you know, but I thought no one else is going to understand this conversation, you know, like really understand it, you know, from like that kind of point of view and stuff. And, and then that's, you know, and that was just a little moment that always sticks out in my mind of like, you know, these are, these are things that affect us, you know, it's, it's true, you know, the culture, you know, it's, it's, it's in us. It's what we, we know. We live here. My husband and I live in a very predominant Hispanic area. And even now, I mean, my hair is, it's like about to my ears, which is very long. It's, it hasn't been this long in, you know, five or six years. But when it was very, very short, like close crop short, we would go out and people would stare at us. And I would always kind of make the joke with my husband, like, you know, I bet these people think that, does this man know that his wife is a lesbian? You know, because my hair was so <laughs> short. But that's how people, that's like the culture, right? Like, why, why aren't you growing your hair? Why are you keeping it short? Why are you doing that? Like, I stood out because no one, you don't see, especially, you know, you don't see Mexican women with short hair. It just... It's not really a thing, you know. My, my um, friends would joke and say that I would now be getting hit on by men and women <laughs> with the short hair. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know. We'll take it. I'll take any compliment. Doesn't matter where it comes from, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I know, um, Vanessa, you had because I remember seeing your pictures when you first mm -hmm. started going through your diagnosis, and you had very long, thick, dark. Um, it was kind of wavy hair, right? It was, yep. It was like wavy, curly, very sporadic curl patterns. Like I knew right off the bat that I was not going to be able to find any sort of wig that could even look remotely like me. Um, so I think one thing that made it, I don't want to say easier, but I think I, I it, it helped me part with my hair before losing it to chemo was when I cut when I like shaved my head I actually had my hair turned into a halo wig um, so basically it was like a really comfy cap and I would wear a hat with it but it looked like my like it was my hair it was just attached to like a wig that you would wear with a hat because typically like a like a regular wig it t it takes a few heads of human hair but if you do a hat wig um you can just use your own hair and that's it so like i could wear a beanie and it, i could wear a beanie with it and it would look like i was just you know wearing a beanie um that's cool. and i think <laughs> now mind you i barely ever wore it i barely ever wore it but <laughs> 
the fact that I was able to preserve my hair, it, it felt like I was kind of, it, I memorialized it, like uh, giving like an ode to my hair almost. I'm pretty sure I wrote a poem about <laughs> it on a blog I used to keep up. Um, but I, I, it was also, it made me think about how, like, even with the wig industry, you only ever see like um, wigs that are predominantly for white women specifically, yes. but also just there really aren't a lot of wigs out there that have our different curl patterns. I mean, not all Latinas have curls, but like, you know, there's different kinds of curl patterns and, you know, different textures. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, But I found that having my halo wig. That was a challenge for me because when I went and I was just grateful to get a wig, but most of the wigs were for like, older women too. You know, you don't have the little oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, curls. And yeah. I was looking for something like that because that's how I had my hair. And, and I mean, I was just thankful to have anything, you know, but yes, it, it is, you know, difficult to find something that matches one being young mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. Latina. You know. mm-hmm. I love that. Mind you, I barely wig. ever wore it. Yeah, it was really, I really liked it. It was really comfy. So I would really only wear it for like work calls if I was facing a customer or something. But if I was just talking to my regular coworkers, I'd be bald. And I was, I dressed up as 11 for Halloween. I was having so much nice. fun. Or I mean, as fun <laughs> as you could have given the circumstances. Um, but, you know, um, but I was mostly bald because it was just like, ugh. Weeks are itchy and just you get overheated yeah. and like it was in the pandemic. I wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. I put my hair, I cut off my ponytail and I put it in a Ziploc bag <laughs> and I just like found it in a drawer not that long ago. But I was like a halo wig would have been a way better idea. Mm-hmm. I, I like that oh. you were able to have something that was still yours and stuff. You know, what am I going to do with this braid <laughs> that's in the drawer? You know, uh, I like that. I don't think I would have worn it though, but I would have liked to have had the option. Like right. I didn't even know about that. So what you're saying is something, you know, that we could tell other women about and be like, Hey, if you, cause I had long mm-hmm. hair, it would have made a great wig. <laughs> like, um, and I had no idea you could do that. And that's pretty cool to know, you know, t- just another option. Well, and I had the same issue that Araceli had because we had, I was treated here at a bigger cancer center and they have a room that has like, Oh, there's the free wigs over there. And I was with my husband and literally every drawer, every wig, every container, there was not one black haired wig that was oh, not aged, right? Because they are very, very, um, not that PTO moms are bad, but they're very PTO mom, <laughs> suburban mom kind of thing. Which I'm, I'm a suburban mom, but not that kind. But yeah, they all look like that. And I thought, this is ridiculous. You're at a huge cancer center. Like there's other people that are coming here. Like I could not be the only person with this problem. There has to be other people with this problem, you know, but I did end up finding a wig. Actually, one of my girlfriends said, um, she said, just Google like beauty supply near you. And so we found a place here in the neighborhood. And um, I remember actually, I, I, just like you ladies, I didn't wear a wig. It, I had one. It was more like, like a, my safety blanket, I guess, just having it there, like it made me feel <laughs> if I needed it, it was ready. But we went to try on, oh, I went to try on wigs with my husband and I found a wig and and I put it on and he had this look and he had like, it, like 
almost tears in his eyes. Like he got real water. I'm like, what's wrong? What happened? Like, what do I do? And he's like, you just had this look on your face. Like, like the old me, like you could see, he could see like, I guess the old me with my hair, you know? So it's very strange. Like you want the wig to give you that sense of normalcy, but then also like the practical side of you is like, it's hot, it's itchy. No one tells you how to take care of it when you get it. So you're just kind of like, you have this wig and you wear it and then it gets kind of funky and you don't know what to do with it, right? (laughs) It's just there. My kids would play with mine. We would take pictures with it and and be silly. My husband preferred, I guess, for me to just go bald and not even wear the wig. He's like, it's not you. It's not you. Just who cares what others say? You know, every now and then I just kind of wanted to put it on, just like you said, to kind of feel a little normal and, you know, just kind of, I guess, have some hair. And he would just be like, who cares? Who cares? Just take it off, you know, be free. And then with the hot flashes, that didn't help. (laughs) So do you ladies feel like where the point that you are, um, you know, post-treatment or in treatment, wherever that spot is you are, do you feel like you've been able to kind of find um, supportive community or at least community that you feel like that is relatable to you or similar or just, you know, comfortable. You want to go first, Deb? I feel like you have have lots of, I feel like you have strong feelings about this. I I do. So when I was first diagnosed, um, the community that I, like I said, I had no family. So my brother was kind enough to send his wife to come and help me. They live in New Mexico. And that was, that was cool. I needed to help. My daughter was four years old and I was like, Oh no, you know, I need help. I need help. And I don't like asking for help. So cancer taught me to ask and accept help. Now, um, I had a strong community because I was doing a lot of organizing and activism in Salt Lake City. So those people really rallied around me. Like I was very humbled. I never had that. Um, it was very humbling. However, you know, none of them, there was one lady, she had breast cancer, but not none of the rest of them, they just wanted to help. And that was great. You know, they arranged a meal train and we're bringing meals, you know, for my sister-in-law and my daughter to eat. Um, you know, we rounded up a little bit of money so I could go to California and visit family but it would take me three years to find y'all three years because I didn't think I needed support from anyone else. I didn't, I wasn't ready, you know? And so, and now in hindsight, I look back and I'm like, you know what I could have, could have probably used for the rest of us, you know, a long time ago, you know, and um, I moved to a rural area about two years ago. And so now I've had some time to just kind of sit, sit with this, you know, and about, I don't know. I would say about January, I started, I decided I was having a lot of pains. Nobody prepared me for these side effects and stuff. Um, and I said, it's time. I need to find the Latinas. I need to find women of color. I need to, I need to know that what I'm going through is normal because nobody can answer these questions. It's time for me to get the information. And I have been so overwhelmed these last few months of just, you know, being in these groups, you know, and, and even with the LBBC training, you know, and, and meeting all of you and stuff and, and being like, wow, I, I feel like I deprived myself of something that I have been needing for a long time. And of course I'm happy now, you know, but I, if I meet someone now, I'm going to be like, Hey, 
it's important to find other people that are also going through this. And for myself, not just metastatic, I wanted to learn about all the stages. I want to know people on every level. Uh, I have my best friend, um, also Latina, she lives in Oregon. Uh, she's undergoing treatment, she's stage three. And I don't know, you know, I want to learn from other people because there are some things, my experience is completely different. You know, uh, being a de novo metastatic, you know, and I didn't have surgery, you know, so I want to learn and I want to be able to support her now in a way that I didn't have, you know, so where I had community support, you know, and people wanting to, do you need anything? That was great. But I, I didn't have anybody to be like, man, I'm so hot. These premenopausal symptoms, you know, this neuropathy, you know, like I, what's happening here? And, and finally it was like, you know, all I had to do was just type it into Facebook. <laughs> like, what was taking me so long? And that's something I'm unpacking, you know, and trying to figure out why did it take me so long? And instead of dwelling on it, I want to take these opportunities now and get to know other women and other people that are going through this and stuff. And 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 I'm grateful to find it now and realizing like, hey, OK, you know, there's more of us. You know, we can do this. Let's talk about this. What about you, Araceli? How do you feel? Mm -hmm. Have you tried to seek out community or do you feel like you're you're good where you are? Uh, I feel good where I am. Uh, now, when I found out that I had breast cancer, I was completely lost. I didn't even know where to start. That was probably the most scariest moment of my life. And to tell my parents and family that was probably the hardest thing as well. And, you know, the Latinos, uh, the Latino family, whenever you hear cancer, you you know, at least my, my parents, they think, oh, my God, you know, she's dying, you know, like, yeah. and, and that, that I wanted, I want to change that. I want to change where I'm more vocal, where I'm the one asking questions, where, you know, we're not scared to ask and, and. Thankfully, I have so much family around me, friends and family, and even my team of doctors. I, I actually do feel comfortable with um, everyone on my team. They, they all are, you know, I communicate with them. I, I message them. I ask questions. I, if I have, like, too many questions, I write them down, and then, you know, I... I sit down and I may be, they're probably thinking like, here comes the lady that's asking all these questions <laughs> again. But, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather ask because I don't want to go home and then just wonder and, and you know, it, it's it's not who I want to be. And, and I don't know if that was the case with my, with my aunt that passed away that, you know, she didn't have that voice and she, maybe she, she didn't have someone to speak up or, or didn't have the social media back then, you know, that, that we have now. So yes, I, I'm happy to have the social media group, the family and the medical team behind, you know, so I, I'm, I'm glad I'm happy where I am. That's, that's beautiful. I'm so glad you have that. Thanks. What about you, Vanessa? I know, like, I mean, I'm, you know, quite a bit older than you. So I can't imagine just coming from your perspective. If I didn't have doctors listening to me at my age, you know, I, I can't even imagine what you've gone through. So how do you feel like you've been able to find support? Oh, yeah. When I was first diagnosed, I felt super, super alone and was just very miserable. And then I just went on Instagram and just started looking up young people with breast cancer of color and I don't know what all. I tried every single hashtag and then all of a sudden um, that's when I started seeing um, you know 
young people with breast cancer and also women of color with breast cancer. Um, I think I still struggle with finding young women of color with breast cancer, specifically those under 30. Um, but it's still really hard for me to find those individuals. But I think part of it is um, young Latinas with breast cancer may not feel comfortable sharing their experiences based off of like what we've just talked about, how there's this sense of shame of talking about your illness and showing that vulnerable side of yourself on social media, um, which is also why I made it a point to really document my experience through all of treatment. I mean, I kind of took a bit of a social media hiatus this past summer because I got a promotion at work, blah, blah, blah. But like before that, I was very, very active on social media and really would basically just be on my Instagram stories showing everyone, this is the infusion center. These are all the old, well, yep. time to go talk to all the old people that always stare at me thinking, what did yes. you do? Um, <laughs> you know, um, you know, just trying to like put some humor into the whole situation of how, yeah. you know, jarring it is. I, I think it was a, a, a coping mechanism for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think, it, 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 so to answer your question, it, I've been, I have been able to meet with a lot of young women who have been diagnosed, but typically those that are my age, the ones that I've been able to diagnose, I've been able to communicate with a lot of them are, um, white women, um, which, you know, nothing against, nothing against that at all. So I think it's just hard for me. Like I'm in a very niche situation where it's like, I'm not only super, super young. I'm also a Latina, like a woman of color. Um, both of those things can together. It's just, it's a lot harder for me to find those individuals on social media. So yeah, I guess that's why I'm I'm so vocal because I want to see other people be able yes. to feel comfortable if they want to, you mm-hmm. know, engage in dialogue and you know create relationships. You know. What about you, Natasha? I know we've had this this talk about community and support, but I'd like for you to share that with everyone. Yeah. I mean, I, for me being, again, I'm an only child and New York city is a very lonely city. If you are a single person, right. Cause everyone is on the go. And so I, and I didn't know anyone that had cancer. No one at all. Um, It was in the middle of the pandemic and I started searching and I found Vanessa. And for a very long time, I didn't reach out to her, but I would follow her and I would ask her questions about her hair or her treatment. And, you know, at that moment, like, and I've, I've said this to Miranda, like seeing her and then through her seeing the women, the amazing women for the breast of us made me feel like I'm not alone. And it gave me a sense of belonging that I hadn't felt. And, you know, people that looked like me, people that sounded like me. And, and, and in a moment that it's really hard and crappy, it made it less crappy. And it it turned a very unfortunate scenario into a very empowering scenario. And I do think the power is in the numbers, right? And and so, Mm -hmm. you know, whether 
the way that I think about it now is when I put stuff in social media, I'm like someone that I have no idea right now is could be looking at that and being like, oh my God, she went through it. And, and if I can help somebody, then that's awesome because if I saw Vanessa, I started checking her stuff, I started reaching out. I then met amazing women like Miranda and, and, and the women and for the rest of us. And now, not only do I have resources of like, okay, here's how I can spread my voice even more because these are women that have other outlets and they're way more developed than I am with my voice. But I also now I have a sisterhood of, of you know, of a network of sisterhood that is actually now beyond breast cancer. It's breast cancer and, and more. Like breast cancer to me, with them, it's now a part of it, but it's not all of it in, by any means. Mm-hmm. I love so, that. And so to me, then it's like, that is what community is about. Mm-hmm. Yes. Someone's cutting onions over here. <laughs> Copy and paste everything she just said. Retweet. <laughs> Emphasize. I think that's beautiful. I love that. I'm just so happy that you ladies could just, you know, share a little bit of your worlds and hopefully, you know, I know it's just a podcast, but now, you know, like Natasha said, obviously you're a part of this now. You can't get away. You're not going away. We're just going to like hound you and follow you forever. So just yes. be prepared for that. Um, but lastly, I just want to ask you ladies, going back to how you felt when you first got your diagnosis and you started your treatment, what would be something that you would tell someone who was your age with your background just starting treatment what was the one thing that you wish you would have had or heard that you would share with someone i know that's kind of a that's kind of a big one it might take a little bit to to unpack that i yeah that's a lot of layers to that i mean i would say for me is just don't forget to be kind to yourself. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I, I think that's very important. Um, I think that I would, you know, I was just telling my husband too, I said, I, I wish that I would have met someone like me, you know, back then. And I would say, advocate for yourself. Advocate, advocate, advocate for yourself. Um, real quick, when I first got diagnosed, I had gone in two years prior for a lump. And they said, Oh, it's a clogged milk debt. You're good. There's no, you're too young, you know? Mm -hmm. And two years later, it's a metastatic, it's metastatic, you know? So I lived in the what ifs. So I would tell a young person be like, Hey, you know, and go, here's some resources, you know, here, like here, let me give this to you. This is not your grandma breast cancer. This is not, there Mm -hmm. are young people going through this. There are women of color going through this. You don't have to do this alone. I wish that I had found this sooner. I wish I had found For the Breast of Us sooner. I wish I had found LBBC sooner and Young Survival Coalition and all these places and stuff, you know, and um, and I think that that's what I would say. I would, I would say, you know, advocate for yourself. You're not alone. And like, even like Natasha said, you know, take care of yourself, be kind to yourself, you know, and be gentle as you go through the process because it's hard. You know, we all know we have very diverse experiences, but then we have this common denominator, right? So it's rough. Yeah. What about you, Anna, I, would, I would say, um, or 
you know, just advise if you can learn your family history. And I know that's really hard because like you, you were talking about, it, it's not easy being Lat Latino and talking about this, but if you can, that will help not only you, but like your sisters, your, your, you know, your daughters and, and for the future, you know, like just to know that you're already getting a step ahead at, you know, with cancer, just, it's just so hard to deal with it alone. And to know that you can ask, and like you said, advocate for yourself. And I was, I think, 34, 35, when I, when I asked for a mammogram, no signs of any cancer or anything. I just went for a, a regular checkup because my, my, my aunt had cancer. And everything came back good. Two months later, um, I felt a bump. And I could have just said, you know what, um, it's nothing. I just had, you know, a mammogram two months ago. But I just decided, you know what, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna just let it hang out there. <laughs> you know, it just, I, I'd rather know. I'd rather know now and, and get a step ahead. So, you know, just doing that and, and speaking up and not letting, you know, the, the doubt stay, like just go get checked. It doesn't matter whether you're in your 20s or so, if you know this information, it will help you out. And then just ask questions, ask questions and, you know, just, I don't know, it's, 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 it's tough. It's tough and, and reach out for help if you need. Yeah. What about you, Vanessa? What would you, what would you tell someone just like you starting treatment? Um, I would say just be open, document everything, and share That's and a good just one. talk talk about everything with your family and with your friends, with everyone. Just it, it's it. We can't treat this as a taboo topic. Like people need to know that this is something that concerns young Latinas as well. It is not strictly an old white woman disease. Like it That's happens right. to women of color. Mm -hmm. um, we're not the exception. Yes, it's marketed as being something that only white women get, but that's not the case at all. So just talk about it, talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. Gosh, you ladies all had like such great, completely different you know, answers and suggestions. I love that. It's putting me on the spot. <laughs> Your turn. <laughs> I think what I would tell yeah, someone is that even if you feel like you're going through this alone, you're not. There are other people just like you out there and you just have to make the effort to find them. Mm -hmm. um, so I was very, very introverted. I was very shy and very quiet. I didn't do things by myself. You know, I didn't want to, you know, go to parties without my husband or go out to dinner with friends without him. I didn't drive by myself. I was always very nervous and anxious. And once I started realizing that my hospital and lots of hospitals, you know, they have events, whether, you know, pre-COVID, obviously, you know, yoga events or informational sessions or whatever that may be, lunches and things. And so I just pushed myself to start going and I met one person and met another person and another person. And so that would be the advice I give to just know that 
you are not the only one, but you have to do a little work to find those people to kind of carry you through, right? That's great advice. Mm -hmm. I wish I had had that. I mean, yeah. I think we all did, right? That was that was yeah. why I'm asking you. I mean, you don't yeah. know what you don't know, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very basic. I think um, it's a unfortunately going through all this. You know, you do get this kind of quick educational crash crash course in terminology and side effects and all those things. And the only thing we can do with that is just take it and share it with others and hopefully to kind of alleviate some of that fear that someone newly diagnosed is going through or, you know, just share what we know. You got to get something good out of this. I don't know what else it could be, you know, besides that. And then these lovely friendships that we have. No. For sure. Um, So I just want to say thank you to you ladies so, so much for being here. Um, This has just been really nice. And hopefully everyone out there who's listening can maybe have a better perspective of um, just what it feels like to navigate treatment as someone who is, you know, quote unquote, not of the norm, right? The outliers, the people who are different, maybe the who are forgotten or looked over, you know? Um, so why don't you ladies tell everybody how we can find you on social media? What about you, Deb? If we're looking for you, where will we find you? Well, I took a hiatus from Instagram, but I'm back on at Deb for Peace 247. I'm also on Twitter at Deb for Peace 247. And I'm mostly on Facebook. That's where I'm really loud at. And that's Deb Ontiveros. So, uh, and I would be happy to talk to anyone and I welcome all the new friendships. And I'm so, so happy to have chatted with all of you this evening. What about you, Araceli? How can we find you? I'm on Facebook, Araceli Cortez, and on uh, Instagram, uh, Chelly048. And I'm also thankful for this group, for this chat. I met everybody here, Natasha, Vanessa, Deb, Miranda. I I was, you know, following you for a little while and just happy to be in this group. And thank you for the invite as well. Well, I should also say thank you for accepting because... You know, not too many people will respond like, hey, you don't know me, but I want to ask you something. So I've kind of figured out that that's the norm now. Like people started yeah. doing it to me. So now I do it. So, you know, so yes, thanks for not people, thinking I'm crazy. Oh, no. Some people, uh, they ask me and I guess they, they don't know if I'm open about talking about it. But I say I, I want to be an open book. You know, if it helps yes. one person, then you know, exactly. that's, that's what I'm here for. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, we will mm-hmm. definitely be hitting you up for some more um, yeah. chats and things. Absolutely. Natasha, how can we find you? Um, you can find me on Instagram, uh, Hitana0930. And then also on, I have a blog, nomelimites.net. Uh, mm-hmm. And why don't you translate that for people who might not know what that is? Yes, it's don't limit me. So that was my mantra when I was being cancer, I actually got got it tattooed in my arm, um, and it's just kind of been my what gets me through everything. So don't limit me. That net, no me this that net. I love that. I'm gonna yes. check it out. Yes. <laughs> Start following you. And baby baddie, remind everybody where we can find you. 
Oh, I live on Instagram. And when I say live, I mean, typically when I'm not on a hiatus, I took a major hiatus this summer. Uh, all of the baddies are quite aware. They're like, where is Vanessa? Um, <laughs> I was not online. Um, but my Instagram is at Vanessa Chapoy. Thank you so That's much. That's really all I'm on. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, ladies. I started following. I just requested some of you. So, Miranda, thank you for setting this up and and just being a vehicle to to have this conversation and and just expanding the sisterhood. Hopefully, they let me do this again. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> but thanks, ladies. I appreciate it. This was great. Thank you. Thank you. This is another Batty Creation brought to you by For the Rest of Us. Don't forget to subscribe to Batty to Batty wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at For the Rest of Us, on Twitter at The Breast of Us, and check us out online at breastofus.com. Thanks for listening.